Hi there, and welcome to Even If, a weekly podcast about standing firm when life is shaking. I'm your host, Kelly Strife. Strife rhymes with wife. And together, we're finding the courage to approach uncertain and unwanted seasons of life through a posture of faith that stands firm and declares, even if he doesn't, he is still good. Last June, the same month that our daughter passed away, one of the worship leaders from our church released a worship album. It's called Bigger Than I Thought by a guy named Sean Curran. And I was convinced it was written specifically for me. It was one of the only albums at that time that I could listen to over and over and over again and sing along with at the top of my lungs because it made space for my praise and my pain, my worship and my grief. It allowed what I was going through to be real and consuming and tragic. And at the same time, it gave me permission to see past it. And that sentence feels completely wrong to say. The depth of our loss was so great that it's hard to imagine ever seeing past it and certainly not that soon. It took up every bit of space that we had. And yet, somehow God gave us this perspective to see beyond it at the same time. I think of it kind of like those magic eye pictures that were popular years ago. Man, I hated those things. I was terrible at them because the harder you stared at the specific image in front of you, the less sense it made. The more frustrated you got, the more confusing the picture became. And so I would stare at the photo trying to will the image to come into view. And when it didn't appear, people would give me all this good advice, like squint your eyes a little bit and don't look directly at the picture and then it'll come into focus. Stop trying so hard and then it'll appear. Which didn't make any sense. So it usually just completely irritated me because I was trying to see something in the photo. So how could I not look at it and still see it? How could I look for it and not try to see it all at the exact same time? Maybe y'all are better at those pictures than I am, but eventually I learned to look through the picture, to see past the object that was right in front of me. And when I did that, sure enough, the image would leap out of the frame and come into focus right before my eyes like it had been there all the time. But the harder I tried to look at it, the less I could see it. And when I trained my eyes toward the distance, when I stopped trying to make sense of the specific designs and colors that I could see in the photo, when I focused my eyes on the other side, that's when it came into view. And I don't want to oversimplify the hard seasons of our lives. The reality of what we see here on earth is just as tangible as that picture in the frame. It's real and heavy and consuming. I'm the last person who will tell you to just get over it and move on. But there's something in our spirits that knows there's a clearer image on the other side. There's something more permanent, more valuable than what we can see right now. And I found myself inexplicably drawn toward people and places that carry that eternal perspective with them here on earth. And that perspective is what I found in the words of those songs. I could tell they'd been written from a place of battle-worn faith. They'd been fought for and wrestled down. So one of the songs has a line that we'd sing, In famine we will eat, in drought we'll see a downpour. 
And I would sing those words with tears streaming down my face because I was living in the famine. I was experiencing the drought. That's what everything about my story was telling me. There wasn't enough. There was no way to bring back what had been lost here on earth. My table felt empty and stark and bare. I didn't know how I was even going to survive this season, much less feast in the middle of it. But over and over, I sang those words into my life. In famine, we will eat. In drought, we'll see a downpour. I was singing something that I knew to be true, even though I couldn't see it with my eyes. My spirit was leaping in agreement with the words I was singing, willing them to be true in my life. And the more I sang them, the more true they became. Not because my situation changed. I didn't have another baby. Imogen wasn't brought back to us, obviously. The specific things that felt lost and stolen in my life weren't ceremoniously returned or unceremoniously returned for that matter. I didn't suddenly find myself seated at a new table. But as I believed that I could feast even in the famine, as I believed that I could experience a downpour in the middle of the drought, I suddenly found myself experiencing it. It was an internal shift that allowed me to see my circumstance through new eyes. It didn't replace it, but it changed it. Much like those magic eye photos when I stopped expecting it to look like I imagined, trying to force the lines and edges to take on the form I wanted or I expected, then I saw the image begin to take shape. There's a scene in the movie Hook from years ago, and I know I'm dating myself here. My husband's name is Peter, and so I look at him often and quote the classic scene after Peter Pan has grown up by saying, Oh, there you are, Peter. But the scene I'm envisioning right now is actually when they sit down at the banquet. They sit down around the table. It's Peter and Tinkerbell and Rufio and all the lost boys, and they pass around pots and plates and bowls and spoons, and there are so many of them, they fill the whole table. They take the lids off and steam shoots out. You can just anticipate the feast that's waiting inside. But the pots are empty. The bowls are bare. There's no food filling their plates. The table is full, but there's nothing to eat. And that seems like the worst kind of famine. And yet, in this scene, all the lost boys around the table start eating. And the scene shows them eating corn on the cob, but it's nothing but air. Their teeth are just chomping on that corn, even though all we can see is air. They bite into burgers that don't exist. They drink out of cups that are dry as a bone. The boys are feasting, even though there's nothing there. But Peter isn't buying it. When Tinkerbell tells him to eat up, he says, eat what? There's nothing here. And you can see him staring at the boys like they've all lost their minds. I imagine he either thought they were crazy or that he was. That was the only explanation. I know that feeling. You've probably felt it too when it seems like everyone else can see something you can't. When it feels like your plate is empty even though the table is full. When you wonder why everyone else is eating when there's nothing there. And then Peter's friends give him this beautiful gift. They remind him what he believes. They tell him this used to be his favorite game and they gather around him at the table and start chanting his name. And then he picks the spoon up 
He dips it in the empty bowl, scoops up air, and throws it across the table. And when it lands, it's not air at all. It's a giant scoop of something blue and pink that I guess is supposed to be food, and it lands smack in the middle of Rufio's face. And then Peter looks at his spoon and it's covered in food. He looks into the bowl and suddenly it's full. He looks down at the table and the pots are steaming, the plates are full. What looked empty just a moment ago is now overflowing with more than enough to eat. The famine turned into a feast because Peter lived like it was true, even when he couldn't see it. And that made the difference. There is undeniable value in naming your reality and acknowledging the pain and accepting our grief as it comes, but there's also value in acknowledging a reality far greater than what we see right now. Something beyond the sharp edges that don't make any sense. Something more real than the things we can touch. Something that lasts forever, even after earth passes away. First Corinthians puts it this way, Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. That's chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. But I love the way the message puts it. So we're not giving up. How could we? Even though on the outside, it often looks like things are falling apart on us. On the inside, where God is making new life, not a day goes by without his unfolding grace. These hard times are small potatoes compared to the coming good times, the lavish celebration prepared for us. There's far more here than meets the eye. The things we see now are here today, gone tomorrow. But the things we can't see now will last forever. There's far more here than meets the eye. Paul wrote this to the Corinthian church, and I just want to be really clear about Paul's perspective here, because I'm going to be honest, and this isn't pretty, but it's real. Sometimes I hear people talking about suffering, about trials, about pain and grief, and my first instinct is to think, what do you know about suffering? My suffering isn't the, woe is me, my life is so hard because I didn't get what I wanted right away type of so-called suffering. I've known death and pain and soul-crushing loss. What do you know about that? And I don't tell you that because it's a healthy perspective. It's actually a place I have to continually surrender my pride to God. But I tell you that because some of you might be having that same reaction. I hope I've shared enough of our story that you know that while I haven't lived your circumstance and I don't find any value in comparing our suffering with others, neither do I talk about suffering in a hypothetical sense. I've lived it. I've stared it in the face, been knocked down by the force of it, stayed down for days and weeks at a time, but always stood back up to face it again. And I hope that I've earned enough credibility that when I tell you I've also experienced the unexplainable hope and joy that comes from the truth of these verses, that you know it's undeniably true and undeniably Jesus. 
And I'm telling you, Paul has experienced real suffering too. He gives us the full list in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He was beaten and shipwrecked and put in prison. He was stoned and robbed. He was cold and naked and hungry and was constantly in danger from people out to get him. People lied about him, misunderstood him, took advantage of him. He carried the physical and spiritual weight of furthering the message of Jesus. And in fact, much of his suffering was because of his faith. If you're looking for credibility, he's got it. So when he pens these words, I listen. And here's what he says about the suffering we face. He says that when everything is falling apart around us, God is still bringing life inside us that it's possible to be built up inwardly, even while things are being torn down outwardly, that my internal reality can contradict my external circumstance. So I can set a feast in the middle of a famine and see a downpour even in a season of drought. And why? Because our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Now, I'm not saying your suffering isn't real. I'm not saying it isn't hard. I'm not saying it isn't unbearably painful. I've lived that reality. I still live it every day. I'm saying that when compared to everything that's to come, it's a blip on the radar. And I know how wrong that feels. I know how impossible that sounds. I know that some of you are biting your tongue and thinking, you have no idea. How could you say that to me? How could you minimize my pain like that? But hear me on this. I'm not minimizing our pain. I'm maximizing what's coming. I'm not toning down the magnitude of the trial you're facing right now in any shape or form. In fact, I'm saying, let it be exactly as big as it is. Because if as big as it is, Paul can still refer to it as small potatoes, as light and momentary troubles here on earth, then that should tell you just how good everything is that's coming and just how much glory it's preparing us for. Let me make sure you hear what I'm saying. I'm saying the bigger your pain here, the bigger your expectation is for the glory that's waiting for you in heaven. I've never held as much expectation as I do right now. I've never anticipated heaven the way I have since Imogen moved there. I've never understood the glory that awaits me as much as I do today. And so I fix my eyes on the reality of eternity instead of the vapor of today. Now, my pain here is real, but it's also temporary. Everything here will fade away. Everything here will come to an end. Everything here will vanish. But the reality of heaven will never end, and I'm betting everything on that. I'm all in there. And when I believe that's what lasts, it changes everything about how I live today. Instead of looking at my current circumstance and trying to see God, I'm looking through it, past it, straight toward heaven, just like the magic eye photos. And when I'm focused on eternity, suddenly my circumstance takes on a new form, a new shape, a new perspective. My circumstance hasn't changed, but my eyes have. And now I can see what was always there. 
mercy, grace, presence, abundance, joy, hope, glory. It doesn't replace the reality I'm living here, but it puts it in perspective. So practically, what does this look like? Practically, how do we train our eyes to see this way? Number one, we look up and look out. Yes, metaphorically, but also physically, because in seasons of stress or trial, our eyes actually compensate by becoming completely focused on what's in front of us. We get tunnel vision and we don't take in the wider view. So spend a few minutes each day keeping your eyes fixed on one spot, but taking in what's in the periphery, what's in your peripheral vision. What do you see? What do you notice? Or spend time looking off into the horizon and practice taking in the panoramic view. Sometimes training our spirits begins with training our bodies to see, to notice, and observe differently. Number two, focus on your inputs. Music is one of the strongest inputs that influences me. I catch the lyrics of a song and can't shake the power of them. Not because they make me feel good, but because they make me feel strong, confident, and convinced of who God is. I pay attention when a lyric causes my spirit to leap to attention, and then I follow that trail. Where does it come from? What does scripture say? What does it tell me about God? I'm strengthening myself inwardly by the inputs I encourage and the ones I limit. This isn't rocket science, but knowing and doing it are two different things. And number three, use your voice. Your voice has the power to bring life into your spirit. In the scene from Hook, before the food actually appears, Peter uses his voice to engage in banter with Rufio. They're actually hurling insults back and forth to each other, so I share this analogy loosely, but you can see the transformation as Peter begins to use his words. What feels awkward and uncomfortable is replaced with confidence and courage. The more Peter speaks out loud, the more he remembers who he is. So meditate on truth through your inputs, yes, but then output those words with your voice, with your mouth, with your lips. Proverbs 18.21 tells us the tongue has the power of life and death. And that's certainly true in the things we say to and about others, but it's also true in the way we speak to ourselves and about God. The more we speak truth over and into ourselves, the more we believe it, and the more we live like it's true. I share those three things not as a checklist. It's not a formula to follow that guarantees specific results within a certain time frame. But these are habits I've adopted to strengthen myself inwardly so I don't lose heart. Your pain is real, and it might last a long time, even through your whole life here on earth. But it isn't forever. And the greater our pain is now, the greater our glimpse into the glory that's waiting for us and will never pass away. It means so much to me that you would listen to the Even If podcast. And my hope is that this episode provides you enough strength to continue standing firm when life is shaking. If this has inspired you in any way, you can always leave a rating or review. It's one way you can let me know you're listening or feel free to share this with a friend, share it on social media. It's another way I get to know if my words are landing. 
I'll see you back here next week for a new episode of Even If.